KPCW News Time is 8.06. You're listening to the local news hour. Let's find out what's in store for our weather today and this weekend. On the phone, I have Thomas Giboy with ABC4. Morning, Thomas. And good morning to you. Happy Friday. It's going to be a bit of a messy day around Park City. And for the Wasatch back, we have a pretty dynamic storm system that's working its way in. And it's tapping into the atmospheric river in the Pacific. So we're going to be looking at a very good chance for wet weather, not only for this morning, but basically through this day. And I think that the best chance will actually come this afternoon into the evening as a cold front begins to work its way in from the west. So we'll mainly be looking at snow showers right now as we're sitting right around 32 degrees in Park City. But the thing is, with this system moving in ahead of it are very strong southerly winds. You've probably already noticed how strong the winds are in the Wasatch back. We could still see some gusts upwards of around 50 miles per hour through the day. And that has led to times of blowing snow in Parley's Canyon. So that's something else to take into consideration. But as that southerly flow brings in these warmer temperatures, we'll see a daytime high getting into the upper 30s, even in Park City. And there's a chance that the snow line in northern Utah climbs to or just above 7,000 feet. So there is even a chance in Park City today where you could see times of a wintry mix or even times of straight rain. Now that poses its own set of issues because if we see times of heavy rain on areas that seen a lot of snow, especially below 7,000 feet, that could lead to localized flooding issues. So that's something that we'll be keeping a close eye on as we go through today. But as we go from this afternoon into this evening, once that cold front begins to work its way through, that snow line will start to drop back down the overnight low, dropping to 21 degrees. I think the best chance for snow will be before we get into the overnight hours because the moisture is going to eventually work its way down into the central and southern portion of the state. But during the daytime today, we could see maybe one to two inches around Park City, and then we could see some healthier totals tonight once that cold front moves through. And then we start to see more snow rather than that wintry mix and then times of rain. And then as I talked about with that moisture working its way into central and southern Utah, the chance for wet weather won't be quite as high for our Saturday. Temperatures will be closer to our seasonal average. We'll be right around 35 degrees, about a one in three chance for snow showers in Park City. So not that high of a chance. Keeping that one in three chance through our Saturday night with the overnight low dropping into the middle 20s. But some of that moisture will try to work its way back a little bit further to the north. So instead of a one in three chance like on Saturday, it'll be about a two in three chance on Sunday. And the daytime high will come back up into the upper 30s. So like we're going to see today, there's even a chance for a wintry mix or even times of rain. But I'm thinking on Sunday, that best chance will be mainly for snow showers. Our skies calm down a little bit going from Sunday night into Monday. We won't be able to completely eliminate the chance for wet weather. The daytime high will also continue to trend in an upward direction, low 40s on our Monday. Then our next big storm system looks like it's poised to move in between Tuesday into Wednesday. And like the system that we're seeing today, a southerly flow ahead of it will also keep those temperatures mild. Low 40s for a high on Tuesday, and then the temperatures will cool right back down on Wednesday. That's going to be our best chance for snow, a daytime high of 38, but will drop to 21 degrees on Wednesday night. Could see another healthy dose of accumulations, especially in the Wasatch back and our mountains. And then that chance for snow could linger into early Thursday before Thursday afternoon and Friday. Our skies could finally calm down a little bit, but very active weather to say the least and plenty of things to keep an eye on through today Th thomas you tell us the same thing almost every week an active system coming again yeah but this one's a little bit different just because of how warm natured it is i mean for the longest time i can't remember the last time that we were talking about the snow line climbing as high as it's going to be for today but yeah it's been a uh, busy winter to the least and it doesn't look like it's letting up anytime soon thank you thomas and have a good weekend you too now let's find out a bit about how all this wet snow and wind is going to affect the backcountry. On the phone, I have Nikki with the Utah Avalanche Center. Good morning. So yeah, we've got a warm, wet, and windy storm um, that's kind of entered the area. 
Yesterday, there were some reports of wind-drifted snow avalanches, natural cornice fall, and wet loose activity in the backcountry. So it was pretty busy. Today, we've got a couple things to think about. The first is gonna be the wind-drifted snow. So there's a huge bump in overnight winds. We've had a lot of soft snow available for transport. That's going to form shallow soft slabs of wind-drifted snow and throughout the day continue to grow and make these slabs more cohesive. They're gonna be most pronounced on leeward-facing slopes, but such high winds can load any aspect. So we'd expect to find them at all upper and mid elevations. On the same tone as wind-drifted snow, uh, cornices uh, have been growing. Yesterday, we got more reports of natural cornice falls. With the warm storm and high winds, we'll continue to see more cornices breaking naturally. So you're gonna wanna give cornices and the edge of cornices a wide berth as they often break farther than expected. Also limit your exposure below. A cornice fall could trigger a larger slab of wind-drifted snow. Second thing we want to think about is just all that new snow. So today we could see both slab and loose snow avalanches that break anywhere from one to three feet deep within layers of the new snow. All things considered, we have a pretty solid snowpack in the backcountry, but we've got buried ice crust, buried rime crust, softer layers of snow, and very isolated pockets uh, of facets. So it remains a bit complicated. The main takeaway is that we've got a lot of snow and we're about to get a few more stressors in the form of wind, snow, and rain. Therefore, we're gonna see new snow avalanches and they could break either on the new snow, old snow interface or somewhere deeper in the snowpack. The final thing I wanna talk about is rain on snow. So at lower elevations below 8,000 feet, there's a chance that we could see rain on snow. If the snowpack becomes saturated and wet, we could start to see some wet activity. So timing's key. If the snow surfaces become wet and unconsolidated, it's time to get out of that elevation band. Overall today, we're gonna to have a considerable danger on all aspects and all elevations. Thank you, Nikki. Have a good weekend. Thanks. KPCW News Time is 8.13. Stay tuned. Coming up, I'll be talking with Summit South Superintendent Greg Mon about developments in the, in the South Summit School District. Max Dolny will stop by to give us an update on last night's city council meeting, and filmmaker Jill Orschel will talk about her new documentary, Snowline. We'll wrap the hour by talking with Renee Bodley-Miller about that very successful pledge drive you just heard about. Uh, let's do, take a look at some local news first. The Summit County Council will consider a recommendation by the county manager to enter an option agreement with the Urie family to acquire their 834-acre farm in the Camas Valley. KPCW's Connor Thomas reports. The council will consider the purchase for approval officially at their meeting next Wednesday, but by all accounts, it's a done deal. Councilmember Tanya Hansen said the county had reached out to the Your family years ago so that in case they ever wanted to sell their land, they would keep the county in mind. The Camas Meadow is a critical, critical part of the Summit County water ecosystem. All the water from that Camas Meadow flows into the Weber River. And the Weber River watershed is a major part of Summit County's water resources. Council Chair Roger Armstrong said in a statement that the purchase is an important step in preserving the Camas Meadow and supports the preservation of agricultural values in the Camas Valley. The county plans to collaborate with Summit Land Conservancy to find additional financing options and leverage the county's general obligation bond open space funds. This would be the second time the county used the $50 million in GO bonds approved by voters in 2021. The first was with the Andrus family, whose 99 acres the county acquired in January. But the county wants to combine the bond money with funds from the Conservancy, Development Community, Government Grants, and other open space partners because, as Hansen said, it may allow more open space acquisitions down the road. We as a county council are trying to make that bond money, that $50 million bond money, go as far as we possibly can. The majority of the property acquired will become protected open space. 
The Yur family are lifelong residents of Summit County. David Yur served as a longtime member of the Summit County Council, and his son Chris has served as a member of the Eastside Planning Commission and County Board of Health. In a statement, the family said while they are sad to end an over 130-year legacy of years farming this ground, they are thrilled with this outcome, adding that it will be a great benefit to the community and county for a very long time. The Year property was homesteaded in 1892 and has operated as a dairy and cattle ranch for more than 130 years. The property is located at the southern entrance of the Camas Valley and the gateway to the Uinta Mountains along State Route 248. Summit County will pay $5 million as an option fee to secure the property and may take up to four years to close on it. This time will be used to secure additional funding to go toward the total purchase price of $25 million. Hansen said it will go a long way toward protecting not just these 834 acres, but the whole county too. Whether you know it or not, uh, we're all down downstream from this property, so it's very, very exciting. I hope everyone's as excited about it as I am. Summit County is still accepting notices of intent from landowners who are interested in preserving their property through acquisitions or conservation easement projects. Summit County landowners interested in applying for funds to protect and preserve their property can find a link to learn more in the online version of this report at kpcw.org. Qualifying criteria include funding, location of property, and other priorities adopted by the Open Space Advisory Committee. Connor Thomas, KPCW News. Here in the studio with me is Greg Mon, the superintendent of the South Summit School District. Last month, we didn't get Greg in the studio. He called us from the legislature. And I want to start by asking him, what is it, what, how would you summarize the things that happen, developments that affect the schools during this past legislative session? Well, good morning. I think uh, I would say it was a whirlwind. <laughs> lots of things passed. Uh, you know, lots of things that didn't pass also. But uh, I think it, it certainly felt like this was a record year for the number of education bills and just for the overall number anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think one of the... Uh, one of the things when we kind of stop and take a look back is, um, you know, there are a lot, a lot of uh, bills that passed that we uh, were really in support of, and there were some that, that we opposed that, that passed. And what were some of the ones that you supported that you think are, 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 were worthwhile? Well, I think uh, right off the bat, one that comes to mind um, is uh, the funding of kindergarten, you know, funding full-day kindergarten is a big deal. Um, in the past, you know, for South Summit School District, we've been, we've been covering the cost of, of that that wasn't covered through, through state funds. And so um, getting that, uh, that bump, it's a 45% increase, you know, in funding for kindergarten for us for full day. Uh, the, we were being funded at a 0.55 and, and now it'll be a 1.0. Uh, so that we're excited about that. It, uh, that obviously has, has positive implications. Well, that's one of those things that I assume has been on the agenda for a lot for, for many years. And it, it has. Yeah, and it's, it's really probably a really good development to get it done. You guys have been funding it yourself. I t are there some districts in the in the state that weren't that weren't doing full day kindergarten as a result of the funding level? Um, yeah, I think there were. Um, I think every district in the state was uh, attempting to attack that uh, and, and provide what they could, but it didn't doesn't mean that every one of their elementary schools was able to offer it. And so I think um, districts around the state had to be strategic uh, with, um, you know, looking at their demographics of, of the schools and seeing where that was the greatest need and, and then starting there. And, and will you be offering it? Obviously, you'll have it. We'll continue to have it, yep. Okay. 
Uh, I looked at the agenda as I was getting ready to, to chat with you this morning, and one of the items I saw was a review of school fees. Yeah, we and, had a public hearing last night on that. And tell me a little bit, big picture, what is the role of school fees in a public school, and, and what's the philosophy behind it? Well, um, school fees, uh, they help pay for, um, uh, a lot of times they'll help pay for things that, uh, things like enrichment, stuff like that. Um, you know, uh, obviously we have athletic fees that help pay for uniforms and, you know, all of the different uh, things associated with athletics. And, and that's true in, in um, a lot of the academic classes as well. Um, we have fees for students that um, are, are taking college level courses in high school. Uh, and, the, you know, those fees go directly to the college, but um, they, they do, you know, I mean, this is a great, high school is a great time to get college credit because it's really cheap. <laughs> and uh, from a parental standpoint, if, uh, if you want your student to get, you know, an associate's degree while they're in high school, they can do it for a fraction of the cost or certainly uh, take a huge chunk out of, out of those generals uh, that they would otherwise be waiting to take when they, when they get onto a college campus. So uh, what schools are they taking college co level courses from? Our, our, uh, our, our college that we work through, our university is Utah Valley University. And, uh, and that's all run through UCHI, the Utah Systems of Higher Ed. Um, different districts have different uh, universities that they partner with. But for us, uh, we, we partner with UVU and, and uh, MTech for technology stuff. And uh, overall, did the fee levels, uh, you know, I know we're in a highly inflationary envi environment. Would, did the fee levels have to go up significantly or was it pretty moderate? Um, a lot of the fees stayed the same. Um, some went up, uh, you know, by $5 or something. Um, we actually uh, had some fees go down. That's one of the things that um, our principals do a really good job of each year. Rather than just generically asking for a high dollar amount and staying at or below that, they actually, they, they actually you know, have, their, have their, their coaches, their teachers, their advisors looking at what the realistic cost is going to be and then adjusting that. And, and the, the nice thing about that is um, fees will go down sometimes. And, and in this case, this year, we, we have some that, that went down, some significantly. You know, as a, 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 in looking over the website to get ready for this interview, I, I looked at some of the vocational courses and their associated fees. Yep. And the range of vocational education that is offered in the South Summit can, can School District was pretty astonishing to me. Can you talk a little bit about the philosophy behind that, what that range is, and how you've been going, going about building those programs? Yeah, we have a, we have a very robust um, career and technical education program in, in South Summit. Um, it's, uh, it's part of the skeleton and backbone of, of our school system. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think you and I have, have spoken in, at, at different times about the importance of technical education and the need for, um, the need for people to be going into the, into the, into the different industries. And, uh, and so we, we've, uh, we've been able to grow uh, our program into what it is over the years. And uh, we do. We have a ton of of offerings and it's great that students can can take those some of those are taught there at the school campus and some of those are taught um, you know at, at, at our UVU campus some are in in Wasatch some are taught um, through MTech so it just they're they're provided through a few different avenues but ultimately 
there are options for kids to take. I was going to ask, because some of these, as I looked at the course list, things like, you know, emergency medical responding to courses and, food and uh, you know, culinary arts, those require um, physical facilities. What kinds of those do you have on your, on your, in your schools itself, and what, which of those do they send to places like UVU? Yeah. There's, there's a, it's a whole mix. Mm -hmm. um, so that it, there's not a clean cut. You know, this program, all of this program goes here and all of this program goes there. Um, we do, we try to offer as many of them on campus as possible. So culinary arts, for example, um, that's one of those that, that we offer there at the, there at the school. Um, some, of our, some of our animal sciences, things like that, we offer there at the school. Um, you know, welding, things like that. So, um, autom you know, our automotive students go to another campus for that. So, it just, it's, it's kind of a, a, a mix, but uh, it, it's amazing how well it works. And I, I'm going to ask you a, a bit of a blindside question. What percentage of your students, high school students, do you think actually take some kind of vocational training? Well, it's actually a graduation requirement in Utah. So, every student should like be some, taking right. something, um, but um, not all students pursue a pathway we have a we have a lot of pathways as you can see with the with the the range of courses that we offer and um, uh, I'd hate to throw out a number because I, I actually I'd be more I'd be more worried that I'd give you a number that was too low mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of students that uh, I think that that go through and and are working on and finishing those uh, CTE pathways and you know obviously a goal of the vocational program is to pre prepare students for their next you know their next set of adventures and, and along those same lines i noticed again on the website that there was going to be a, a coding showcase uh, at the south summit this week what's that about yeah so um it, you know we have a, a coding week and and uh it's a it's a fun time um teachers really have embraced that and you see teachers uh embedding and uh, coding in in their classroom instruction um, and uh, really just it an awareness but also just it's it's an opportunity to have some fun um, and uh, and get kids kind of going in that direction to see if there's any interest or passion in in that and um, you know that's one of the one of the fields of the industry that is is in need and um, so like I said it's it's an opportunity for um, it's going to obviously the exposure is different at different grade levels, um, but uh, the the teachers adjust that accordingly, and and they they have fun with it. So, are these kids are your students actually learning to write code, and, and at what grade levels is that happening? And are, are there teachers who are actually you know capable of teaching that at various levels? We yeah there there are, and uh, I'll, let me give you a quick example. Um, oh, it was. You know, during the legislative session, the the time time goes by fast and time goes by slow. Sometimes, so a month or two ago, I was out at Silver Summit Elementary, and Miss um, Willoughby, our principal, was working with a grade uh, a group of I, I believe they were uh, second grade students on coding, and um, the kids were actually doing the the activities with the coding and getting little. I want to call them Autobots. I don't think that was what they actually called them, but these little cars to drive and make turns, make U-turns, and go, you know, they were, co it was second grade appropriate level coding to get things to, to respond. Uh, it was amazing. 
And, and that group actually was competing. Uh, they were competing uh, in coding uh, as, a, as a grade. Something tells me I could not do second grade, second grade level coding, but I suppose <laughs> it's an ambitious goal for all of us. And pretty exciting that these kids are actually doing that. Yep. Uh, also, another thing I noticed on the website is that this was school breakfast week. Yeah. T- w- w- what is the significance of that? And you know, how important is the breakfast offerings at the, in, in the school district to your students? Well, I think breakfast is, you know, breakfast is important for all of us, as we know. You know, they say breakfast is the is the most important meal and and uh, that it sets you up for the day and so it's it's a big deal for us um, we have a, about 20 percent of our students are on free or reduced lunch um, and does that does that pick up breakfast as well uh-huh okay yeah so um, you know to me that's a significant number of students that that uh, rely on on school for for breakfast and and for lunch and so uh, I love that um, I love that we get to celebrate you know, school breakfast week, and uh, we have the best food services people. I don't know if you've seen uh, some of the videos that some of our food service uh, workers put out, just fun videos on Facebook and, and Instagram. Our food service workers are awesome. They're by far the best I've, I've ever worked with, and um, they, they do a great job of making every, every student feel welcome and, and just feel like they belong. And, and, uh, so it's, it's an opportunity we get to celebrate with them. Uh, you know, Greg, we've talked in the past about the innovative workforce affordable housing efforts that the South Summit School District is engaged in. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an update on that? You bet. Thank you. Um, our, the RFP that we talked about before, it closed, and um, we have a committee that met. We went through, um, there were, there were two, respon- two responses to the RFP. We went through both. And um, right now, where we're at is um, our business administrators contacting both. We, we want to get more information um, and provide a little bit more information to them to make sure that there's clarity on, on what we're needing and what we're wanting. And, uh, and so we're, we're hoping to have that wrapped up in the, that part of the RFP in the next month or so. And the deliverable for that RFP is what? Is it a study? What exactly are they, are they proposing to do? Well, um, some of it is proposing the type of housing. You know, we've talked about duplexes, condo style, some single family dwellings. Um, so that some of it is, is taking that footprint, designing that. Um, some of that also, is, some of it is looking at the realities of infrastructure and the costs associated with that. Some of that is uh, also, you know, any grants or things that they uh, can bring to the table to bring that cost down. So it's, it's really kind of that feasibility where we should have a dollar figure of what to expect um, so, that a, so that our school board can make an informed decision on moving forward. And you expect that process to wrap up in the next couple of months? I, I'm, I, I'm hoping this RFP process will be uh, this, at least this part this of it, in, in the next month or so, yeah. Anything else you want to touch on before we go, Greg? Well, just lots and lots and lots of things going on and lots of snow, lots of parking <laughs> spots, you know, being yeah. filled with snow at, at the schools. And, and uh, we love the moisture, but, um, boy, our, our, our facilities crews, our, our, our custodians, they are working gobs and gobs of overtime to keep things open and safe for kids. And I just I wanted to publicly 
thank them for, for all their hard work and our, our maintenance people are just, they're all amazing. So thank you. The Park City Council held its regular meeting last night. Here with a debrief is Council Member Max Darling. Good morning, Max. Good morning, Roger, and uh, congratulations on another great fun drive. It's always fun to hear all the local support for KPCW. I, I think we had a lot of fun, but and more importantly, we were really gratified by the community support that we got. Um, last night, the council got an update on the Homestake Affordable Housing Project. What's going on with that? Where's the site, and how many units will we build? Uh, well, the site is over there on Homestake Drive. Um, you know, they... they it, it's the old engine house. That's what they told us last night. And so that's what they're going to name the project, the engine house. So um, it's nice to have it put a name to it uh, rather than just the home stake site. Um, 99 affordable housing units, 60% uh, AMI or below for those 99 units. Uh, there are a handful of market rate units above and beyond that. Um, they've exceeded their parking requirement and they're hoping to get under construction here in May if we can get through the rest of the process, the city process. And who, who's the developer of this? Oh man, you put me on the spot. I, 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 don't, I thought you might know, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, I just don't want to no. butcher it, but they've been really good partners and uh, Rory, Rory Murphy's been working with them and um, they've been, they've been checking off all the, all the boxes. What are the next boxes to check off in order to get it in front of planning? What are the next the boxes? The next boxes. Do they, they have to do soil analysis? What? They've been doing all that stuff. They're, they're, uh, I think they just go before planning commission to get a, to get a site plan approval. Uh, boy, you're, you're putting me on the spot here on exactly the next piece. Um, I know we have to work on the land lease, so they're through, they're through most everything except for the land lease, and then it will come before us for a final approval. And a land lease is needed because this land belongs to the city? Is that, is that what this is? So, so you'll be, it'll be like a 99-year lease or something like that? I'm not going to commit okay. to, no, no, to what the lease is. A, we still long, have to go long, through that process. Right, a long-term yeah. lease in order to be long enough for you to be able, able to build a building. Obviously. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you feel about that project going forward? Is this, is, do you think um, this is a big step forward for us? It's a huge step forward. Public-private partnership, first one we've ever done in the city. Um, they're checking all the boxes. It's in a perfect location, walkable, bikeable. Um, they're exceeding our, our requirements for affordability. They're exceeding our requirements for parking. Um, they've been good community partners. We have a well-respected developer um, working with them, so um, I, I couldn't be more happy about it, and I certainly hope it it gets to move forward as quickly as possible. And and for those of us who aren't that familiar with the geography, can you visually try to try to help us understand what's it near? In other words, where, where how would you describe where it is on Homestead? Uh, well, if you take a left on Homestead off of 248, there, um, it's about you know, 700 yards in on the left. It's the big parking lot there that butts up against the storage units behind it. And then currently it's being used for the Kimball Arts Center parking. And um, there's a little bit of overflow parking that happens there. A lot of times it's used for Sundance. Uh, people do park and rides out of there. They run shuttles from there for Sundance. And how does this fit in with the Arts and Culture District restudy? I mean, this is right, right in that same area, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it'll obviously inform the small area plan. Um, it's, uh, but this has been on the, on the docket for a lot longer than the small area plan. This, was, this fit in really well with the previous arts and culture district. Um, obviously, we're reevaluating all of that at the, at, in the moment. But, um, 
you know, you can't just stop everything. You got to move forward with some small elements. I think our walkability pieces are going to continue to move forward, and this will inform that small area plan to a certain extent. You know, as you say, as you mentioned, this is a big step in terms of a public-private partnership and to actually get something significant done. Are you seeing other similar kinds of projects on the horizon that that that, that might use the same kind of model? Um, I think that depending on how successful this one is, <clears throat> we'll probably see more opportunities to do something like this. Uh, but currently, we've approved a bunch of affordable housing, just a private development out there at um, the film studio, Studio Crossing. They're going to deliver uh, a, a whole host of affordable housing units, and that's another community benefit. So I think what we're seeing is the city is starting to look at creative ways to provide housing where we're not the only developer of affordable housing in the area. And uh, public-private partnerships or certainly just private developers, we would love to see more and more of that. Max, I understand that last night you requested a work session on the concept of ranked choice voting. Can you explain what that is? Um, well, the idea is to have a study session actually on ranked choice voting. And um, look, ranked choice voting is, a, is a, a, an election process that's being used in Utah currently. It's, it's growing in popularity across the country. And for Park City in particular, I don't think we have a problem with our election process. Uh, I think we continue to elect good officials. Um, that said, <clears throat> ranked choice voting might actually make for a shorter election season where we eliminate primaries, which I think will has the potential for bringing out you know, really serious candidates only. And I think that it allows us to just continue doing the city's work for longer while, so we're not c campaigning um, sort of perpetually. It's, there's really only one and a half years in between each election cycle because people start pretty early. And, and I'd, I'd prefer to see that election cycle shorter. And I think uh, ranked choice voting also gives you the opportunity to say, I like number one, two, and three, and four. These are my options. I think it'll have... Uh, pretty solid impact on our mayoral elections because there's really, you know, there's one person elected, there could be three or four candidates and they all get to run against each other. And um, uh, you're likely not to have anybody get elected that didn't get more than 50% of the vote. So that, to me, that's like a, that's a big piece, right? We want the majority of our public voting for our officials. And what kind of, we bring in some outside talent to sort of inform the study session, like an academic that somebody, I, I mean, I've read a lot about ranked choice vote. It's a fascinating concept. Yeah, exactly. And look, <clears throat> I'm no expert. That's why I asked for the study session. I would love for them to come in and educate us a little bit. Why? Um, it's a good idea how it works elsewhere, how arduous the process would be for us to make that kind of a switch. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I look forward to the study session. I'll be learning along with everybody else, and I hope everybody pays attention and chimes in. You mentioned that these campaigns start earlier and earlier, which creates an irresistible question for me. Have you made a decision as to whether you're going to run again? Well, again, one of the reasons why <laughs> I feel like this would be a great, uh, you know, change for the election process is right now I'm really focused on the city's work. There's plenty right in front of us. And um, I've said from the outset, uh, as soon as I started running, I'm not interested in the campaign part. I'm interested in the work part. And I would hate to be... Uh, 
trying to make decisions at the city level that were based on an, a re-election of some sort. I just want to try and make decisions based on the merits right in front of me, and there's plenty of work to be done between now and June when we got to decide. Um, so I'm just not distracted with that at the moment. Okay. The Waterwise Landscaping, uh, uh, is that an ordinance or uh, it was approved last night? Can you explain what that's about? Uh, well, that was actually a work session. We didn't approve anything yet. Okay. Um, we're, we're going through that process. Um, we gave direction to um, stage the implementation process. We essentially, it was really high level. We stole the code from Salt Lake. We adjusted it a little bit to fit Park City's needs and um, hope, you know, the idea is to start in areas where we already have uh, people behaving in a particular way. So we'll stage the implementation if it is approved, which it, it has not been approved yet, um, starting with things like special events, which are one-offs, and we can kind of test the system. We want to make sure we get solid haulers and a recommended hauler list so that they you know, meet certain standards for, uh, for water-wise uh, waste, et cetera, and then move on into the commercial zone where we are, you know, where we have large amounts of waste that are food waste that could be diverted from our landfill. And the idea is to try and extend the life of that landfill in Summit County for as long as possible, because currently it's not going to, um, it's not going to last as long as we had anticipated. So take a step back, big picture. What is WaterWise, what was the WaterWise program going to do? What, what is it asking people to, to how, how, does, how does it seek to change behavior? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think in the end, what we want is for people to, uh, let's see, I've mixed up a little bit of our stuff. I'm talking waste management strategy right, and then I'm talking water-wise. I'm sorry, we it's got okay. two, two big things. So 66% right. um, of our survey, re survey respondents are willing to replace their turf outside. So that's the piece. Sorry, right. I was getting into the, into the waste management strategies, which was earlier in the night. On the water-wise stuff, essentially, we're talking about replacing turf with plants uh, and landscaping around your out, the outside of your home or in new commercial development that um, that uh, uses less water. I mean, we've been asked to do that quite a bit. Sorry, I told So is that going to mostly affect future development? In other words, is, is one thing that's going to happen is going forward, n new projects will have to have certain kinds of criteria that will be required. Yeah, exactly. They're going to have plant recommendations. You don't have to com commit to that exact plant once you put in a plan. But um, the idea is that new construction will have water-wise landscaping. There was a little debate about turf and and uh, and grass. And at the end of the day, like we're just trying to encourage good behavior, less water usage, and especially on new construction, we don't want to see big lawns out there. Um, and then there are also little elements in there like HOAs can't require uh, residents in that HOA to maintain their lawn. If they want to change to a water-wise system in their lawn, they're allowed to. And just to clarify things, the waste management piece was about changing behavior with respect to Maxim minimizing what goes to the landfill. Yeah, exactly. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. <coughs> yeah, so, was, so, so again, th that you were looking to cause people to, to just a little bit of what behavior we're trying to change there. Well, so that one's a little bit more on the commercial side and the special events side, and this is waste management strategies. Mm -hmm. we, we, we looked out, we, we went out and looked at the community and 71% of the waste on Main Street is food waste that mm -hmm. could potentially be diverted. 45% um, of the waste that's coming out of single family homes and residences 
could be diverted. And so we're just trying to scratch the sur surface on how to impact change there so that people will start uh, you know, diverting their waste in a more responsible way. Obviously, one option would be composting. Is is there a concept that we might actually get a third bin that you would actually try to focus food waste out, you know, into into a third collection stream? Yeah, absolutely, okay. absolutely. Uh, Max, there were. I, I want to talk just before we go a, a little bit about the legislative session. It seemed like this year there were a number of issues where we're seeing a, an increasing pattern of the state legislature trying to take away local control. Have you ever seen anything so drastic before? Um, look, I've been on the legislative policy committee for the city since I got, uh, since I was elected, and there's never been a legislative session that was this aggressive, but they're always trying to sort of chip away at local control. Um, our state legislature is filled with a lot of people who think that they know better than we do. Um, it's interesting because many of them were local representatives and they, they understood the process at a local level and, um, you know, their reasoning, you know, sometimes I can understand the logic because occasionally we have bad actors, but uh, it feels a little bit like there's a lot of tripping over quarters to pick up pennies and <laughs> that's, not, uh, that's not really helpful to communities like Park City who tend to really check all the boxes and operate to the letter of the law. So we're, you know, we're a little bit frustrated by the process at this point. Um, we share Summit County's concerns. Max, anything else you want to touch on before we go? Nope. Sorry for the confusion there on the water-wise versus waste management. Lots of W's in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, hey, I, wanna, I do want to give one shout-out to our snowplow drivers and our uh, waste removal services. They are operating in some seriously difficult conditions. We got 40 inches of snow predicted over the next seven days, seven to eight days. Um, it's just going to keep coming. Let's go ski, enjoy it, smile, laugh, enjoy your neighbor's shovel. Use a snowblower to save your back if you got one on your neighbor's property or something. But um, let's not start complaining about the snow just yet. This is a wonderful winter that we'll talk about for generations. Thanks, Max. Next Thursday, Park City Film will present a special screening of Snowland, a work in progress. Here to talk about this extraordinary documentary is filmmaker Jill Orschel. Morning, Jill. Good morning. How are you? Thanks for joining us. So, Jill, let's start with an overview. What is this film about, and how did you become involved with the project? The film is about a former child bride in a secretive polygamous sect, which we know as the FLDS, um, who escapes through her imagination by creating a fantasy world she calls Snowland. She's now 70 years old, and actually she's 74 years old, and she recounts her time of being a child bride, having 12 children, and going through um, severe domestic abuse, uh, sexual abuse and physical abuse, her and her children, and she tries to do something about it. The town doesn't help her, so she takes things into her own hands in her own way, and she creates a fantasy world. And she, it's a wonderful um, uh, visual um, uh, landscape and realm to explore visually in a film. So it feels like you're going to be telling two stories. Absolutely. Right? One story is about 
um, what things were like in, what was it, Short Pump? Is that the name of it? Short Creek. Short Creek. Mm-hmm. Uh, Short Creek 50 years ago when she's mm-hmm. a child bride. And mm-hmm. one part's going to be about this fantasy world. Let's take just a second and talk, uh, just a, a little time and talk about how, what was her life in Short Creek like? How, you know, how, how did she come to, to get married? What, how did it work? Yeah, you know, when she was um, 13, 14 years old, she was very excited to be there. Uh, she, for her family lived in Salt Lake at first, uh, in poverty, and they were living from apartment to apartment. And um, there was these pamphlets that were going around about uh, they weren't called the FLDS at the time, but this you know about living polygamy, and going down in Southern Utah where there's lots of space, people will take care of each other, uh, they they can find salvation, blah blah blah. And the family's like, hmm, let's go do that. And for Cora Lee Witt, who is my um, documentary participant, she talks about it being a magical place down there at first. And the idea of getting married to some older um, gentlemen was very exciting for somebody coming of age. And so that was very revealing in the, uh, the film, in the interviews that I did with her. And she talks about that, and um, she gets married at thirteen. She actually got married one month before she was fifteen years old. Oh, so she was much older. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So there's that side. Things turn bad very quickly from day one (laughs) because all of a sudden she's she's the second wife with somebody else that is married to her husband. That woman has kids. Cora ends up being the indentured servant in the family, taking care of everybody. At one point, she is, she's taking care of 19 children, four in diapers. I could barely take care of my one child in diaper and then my second one. Um, so, uh, you know, she's like, oh, this isn't what I signed up for. And, of course, a lot of people, most people in that um, community, they're, they're trying to you know, seek their salvation and mm-hmm. go to heaven uh, in different levels. And the biggest level is if the family has three wives and everybody, you know, sacrifices themselves. And so it's, yeah. Now, is this, is this the Colorado City area? Is that where she Yes, is? it okay. is. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this eventually becomes the Warren Jeffs that's, community? Yes, yes okay. exactly. Okay. And so that's, that's, that's the first There's story. There's that side, yes. And the second story is this fantasy world she creates. How, how does that work? Well, so she is a writer of books. She's a self-published book, and she's always writing chapters, even to this day. She's not, she's, you know, writing. She creates costumes for her characters. There's, you know, 20 or so characters in Snowland, in the Snowland realm. She draws um, what I love is the colored pencil drawings of different scenes. Um, so there's actually one more, you know, story mm-hmm. to this to the film that I'm telling, and that's her. So there's her past. There is the um, Snowland realm, and then her present day. Mm-hmm. And that is I, I, I shot 98 days down in the Salt Lake City apartment, little apartment, little snow globe that she lived in with her da- grown daughter, Becca, who's also an artist. 
And I also went down to Colorado City a lot because Cora ends up going back home. She goes back home a lot because her family, a lot of her family is still living there. She has 12 children. And imagine how many grandchildren come out of that. So um, there is the present day mother-daughter story, which is the thing, is a, for me, is the, the main story. It's a buddy movie. Hmm. It is about family, the love of mother and daughter, and how they, really, how, how Cora is healing from her past. So you, we get stories about people having, you know, dealing with, you know, abuse. And then we have people talking about their abuse that had happened. Mm -hmm. So the first one is very visual. It's happening. The second one is you hear about it because they're talking about it. This one, this film is a departure from that. It's because it's about the healing, which is an inner thing. It's a harder, it's a harder thing to deal with. Yeah. But it's, I'm very qualified to tell this because I'm deaf. I'm always wanting, um, you know, looking for transformation in my, um, the stories that I tell. And I'm fascinated by inner growth and personal growth. Um, the thing is that we're able to put a nice visual to it because of the snowland. That is the vehicle to tell the story. And why are you choosing to, 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 to show the film at this point? The, the publicity says it's a work in progress. Where are you in the process and why are you showing it now? Okay, awesome question. I have had to, uh, so I'm the director producer and cinematographer of this film. Uh, we have a whole team involved. Uh, um, so I've had to take off my director's hat for the past three years and put on my producer hat and I'm raising funds for the movie. So uh, right as the pandemic hit, we did a very successful crowdfunding campaign. It was really fun. You really learn about your your audience and you know how people are responding to the story that way and we were able to raise thirty thousand dollars that was really incredible i was just humbled then i took a year and wrote grants also with a team of collaborators and we were so close to getting a sundance grant but we didn't but we did get a mountain film grant which uh, out of um telluride and also invitation to screen at their festival which we'll talk, you know, we'll deal with that when we finish the film. So now we're on a, um, you know, you know, I actually have eighty-five thousand to to raise. So we're doing a campaign called "Be a Part of the Art," and we've done it all winter long, and it's been incredible. I um, people near and far are um, coming on board to be a part of the art, and we're looking to raise funds for our animator, our editor, and our composer that are working hard so we can get it finished. So we're gonna show the, um, the work in progress scenes, just scenes that we're working on, um, kind, of, kind of pull the veil back on you know, the creative process. Um, I'm excited to, you know, when you have people in a room sh showing your work, you're able to see it through fresh eyes. So I'm really excited to um, have that experience and, and it's the um, day after our campaign, which is going to be March 20th, my birthday, we're going to jump right in and use all the funds for, that we've gathered and um, get this film finished. And the screening will be next Thursday mm -hmm. at, at, by Park City Film. It'll be at the Santee. Um, 
uh, I believe the, the, the cost is $15. And yeah, well, you know, if you're a Park City Film member, you get in for free. So I really encourage people to become a member at Park City Film. We're so um, excited that part of their uh, Made in Utah program is sponsoring us. And um, yeah, and $15. And we're going to be giving out pledge cards uh, for if anybody wants to get involved in a, in a bigger level. So... We've been talking with Jill Orschel about Snowland, a work in progress that will be screened next Thursday at the Sandy. Here in the studio is Renee Bodley-Miller, KPCW's general manager, to celebrate our most exciting and successful Pledge Week. How did it go, Renee? It went really well. Thanks, Roger, and thanks to everyone out there who made a donation. Thanks to all of our volunteers. Thanks to all of the friends and family of our staff members who chipped in extra hard this week. So all of us could be here. I want to give a shout out, especially to my neighbors, the Dyers, who let the dog out. Shout out to Juliana's kids who managed to fend for themselves while she was here 12 hours a day. It truly is a community effort. And Renee, to summarize the results, how do we do? We made $277,000, which is about 20% higher than what we had uh, budgeted to make. And as we talked about Wednesday night, with the Board of Trustees after they came in and raised $14,000, um, we, we said there are a lot of projects that we want to do um, that we had on a, on a one-year, two-year time frame, and we want to do that now. So um, we're going to put some notes together and look, crunch the numbers, and um, one thing I can tell you we're definitely going to do, John, you can chime in on this, we're going to buy a heated satellite dish cover. <laughs> <laughs> so we get no more great pictures of Leslie oh. Thatcher shoveling off the satellite cover at 7 in the morning? It, it's so much fun, Roger. <laughs> if, you, if you haven't uh, dug through it, I'll, I'll bring you up. Today we will definitely need to get the satellite uh, brushed off. So after the show, I'll bring you up there to show you how much fun it is. R Renee, there were a couple of really outstanding hours during uh, the Pledge Week. One of the ones that really you know struck out to me was the DJ hour. My goodness. Holy mackerel, John. You were in the thick of it. They, they raised so much money ahead of time. That's what was really unique about this hour this DJ hour in this pledge drive. Um, the phone volunteers were back there ready to take all these, you know, more than 100 phone calls or donations that we had during that hour. But a lot of them came in early online. The DJs were really doing their legwork. Karen Bell, man, she really worked it. <laughs> she got 26, I think, 26 votes. Uh, and then we had 13, Ryan, who will be on at 9 o'clock this morning. He, he got quite a few votes. We've got uh, Jolene, our Sunday night, uh, Sunday afternoon. I think she came in second. But the official uh, results of DJs won't be in until Sunday. We talk about local news, but we play a lot of great music. Music too, and it's Fresh Tracks Friday. I can't hear what Christy can't wait to hear what Christy has put together. Can I do a shout out to our Gold Level sponsors, please? Oh, definitely. Park City, Epic Promise, Deer Valley, Promontory Foundation, High Star Ranch, Iron Horse District. Thank you, everybody. Big shout out to our serial donors. We call them Karen Scheibel. Um, we had Mary and Charlie Winsor call in. They called in a lot on Wednesday. We called it Winsor Wednesday. Um, and our son was on there. Our new Broadcasters Club members, those who renewed, thank you, everyone. Um, we're going to keep working really hard to show you we deserve your donation. So, Renee, put this uh, winter pledge drive in, in historical context. How did we do relative to other years? Last year, um, it was sketchy, man, because Russia had just invaded Ukraine and everyone was a little on edge. And we were hoping to get over the $200,000 mark, and we only made $196,000. So compare 196 last year to 277 this year. Um, that That's a huge increase. And again, thank you everyone. You know, the biggest difference in the past year was we started putting out that daily newsletter at the local and more and more people are telling us we are their number one source for local news. We appreciate everyone who listens to us.